0: So here's the thing. The R-Age is rising. Restrictions to our rights are being imposed without parliamentary oversight. New legislation seeks to blatantly violate international law. Judicial review is under review. And across the pond, the death of one of the great liberal jurists is about to lock in a conservative majority on the Supreme Court for generations. Yes, the rule of law is still under attack. And so what better time could there be for the Matrix Law pod To return from its summer holidays for a new season. I'm Richard Hermer, and with me to discuss these topics and more are my co hosts, Helen Mountfield, member of Matrix and principal of Mansfield College, Oxford, and Murray Hunt, also a member of Matrix and director of the Bingham Centre for the Rule of Law. Now, this episode is really somewhat of a taster for what's to come, discussing what we consider to be the issues of the moment, which we're then going to dissect in more detail with the help of expert guests over the coming weeks and months. So, Helen Murray, where to start on this smorgasbord of legal calamities? Uh, Hard to pick, but why don't we start with the Internal Markets Bill. Helen, can you um, help us with a reminder of what this bill is all about and why it's proving so controversial?
1: Yes. So the, the internal markets bill, um, is, uh, before parliament because, uh, the government, um, made an agreement with the EU about the terms on which we would withdraw and particularly, um, that Northern Ireland would be, um, within a common, um, customs area with um, the Republic of Ireland um, so that there wouldn't be a hard border in Ireland and there wouldn't be um, distortions on imports in the EU. Um, The problem with that is that inevitably it means that there will be um, or would be, if that were followed, um, rules which apply in Northern Ireland and not in the rest of the um, United Kingdom. And um, the uh, measures the uh, UK government have taken um, are to introduce an internal markets bill, which is intended to protect um, the operation of the UK as one internal market. Um, but that is not really possible while um, complying with the withdrawal agreement with the EU. So, um, the bill uh, says that um The the border provisions between uh, Northern Ireland and the UK will be a matter for the UK, um, irrespective of whether the regulations that um, provide for them breach um, international law or indeed national law. Um, And there are also some very significant um, implications of this for devolution. And
0: well, come to devolution at a moment if we may. But I mean, it may be said that Britain breaks its international treaty law obligations. all the time, findings against it in various uh, different fora. Why is this any different or why should this be any more controversial?
1: The the United Kingdom is... On the whole has seen itself and i think largely been seen um, as a state that does try to comply with its international law obligations and it may sometimes interpret them differently or more narrowly or breach them, um, but not deliberately set out to breach them. Here we have a, a government minister um, Brandon Lewis, saying accepting in Parliament that there would be breaches of international law um, if the regulations under the uh, Internal Markets Bill were passed, um, he says it would be just a specific and limited breach. But frankly, you know, if I murder one person, that's a specific and limited breach too. It's still a breach of the law. Murray,
2: yes, and Richard, can I can I add to that that um, the the breach of international law which is in play in relation to this bill is really particularly. Brazen, um, as you say, quite often there's argument, and the government is saying this. There's quite often argument about domestic law being in tension with international law. International law sometimes leaves scope for reasonable interpretation, and often there's discussion about how to bring national law into line with international law. But what this bill does is to um, both authorize and itself breach a very recent international agreement, which this prime minister, on behalf of this government, entered into very recently. Fought an election uh, on the back of uh, to implement. The new Parliament then implemented that treaty in the Withdrawal Agreement Act. um, And it's that from which this bill resiles. So it is the most extraordinary departure from a recently uh, agreed international treaty, a recently implemented international treaty given effect to by this Parliament. So it's a direct assault on the basic principle of Pacta Sunt Servanda.
0: Now, we talked a lot in the last season about the kind of breakdown in international institutions, international coordination, and the kind of international framework, international law framework that underpins all of that. I mean, should we be seeing this move as in, in, in that context, or is that over-inflating concerns?
1: I, I think it is very much a piece of, of, of that context, that the, when you don't even pretend to respect or comply with those rules, when you're not even attempting to, even in a minimalist way, then you have a real problem. And it's very difficult um, to argue that other states should be complying with the rule of law when you are saying this, if it doesn't suit you, uh, and no matter how uh, recent and clear the obligations you've undertaken, you won't do it. And also, that you won't comply with the dispute resolution mechanism, which you've set up in a in, in a treaty. And you said, we don't want to do the court of justice. We don't, it won't be the national courts. So he will be a specific tribunal. And then you say, well, we won't go to the specific tribunal. We'll just sidestep it.
0: There's been a lot of um, calls in the press for both the attorney general and the solicitor general to resign. Now you often hear um, calls for politicians to resign, but the difference here appears to be an argument that they are obliged to resign um, Murray, what's going on here, and, and should they resign?
2: Well, I think the, uh, the, the nature of the obligations on the law officers is very clear, that they have an, uh, an, an active duty to uphold and promote uh, the rule of law. Um, now, my view is that the rule of law includes respect for international obligations, uh, and this bill really is unprecedented. Um, in, in the way in which it departs from international obligations. The government has sought to say that this is actually just a reserve power, uh, which might be exercised at some point uh, in the future. But in fact, the bid itself does directly repudiate a central provision in the withdrawal agreement with the EU. Um, the, in that agreement, the UK agreed that it would bring in, by legislative means, uh, a, a mechanism to make sure that the rights protected by the withdrawal agreement Could be protected in the UK in future, including by setting aside inconsistent future primary legislation. That was part of the agreement. This bill actually undoes the implementation of that obligation. So it's a very direct repudiation of an international obligation which we which we've assumed. For me, that's a a direct breach of the rule of law, which includes our obligation to um, respect international obligations. So I think the position is fairly clear for for me.
0: Well, that's that's a fairly clear position, but it's not a fairly clear answer to the question: should they should they resign? Are they obliged to resign?
2: Well, I would like to see Parliament calling the law officers to account, because whether I think they should resign or not is neither here nor there, really. I think Parliament really now ought to um, ask for detailed explanations from the law officers um, and scrutinise and test those reasons and see if Parliament is is satisfied that they're adequate. And if if Parliament isn't, um, Parliament's in a position to to call for the resignation.
0: Helen, can I ask you about something you raised at the outset there, which I must confess isn't something that... I'd picked up on. You said that this bill has potentially profound impacts for the union. Why is that?
1: Yes, um, that's because health and environment in particular are devolved matters in uh, Scotland and Wales, which are legislatures with their own um, elected assemblies. But the Internal Markets Bill, parts one, two and three of the Internal Markets Bill um, have important consequences for the operation of those as independent mechanisms. So part one is about mutual recognition of um, laws. So if trading standards in England, for example, say one thing, then those standards have to be recognized for goods and services which are um, provided in other parts of the United Kingdom. And there's also in part two, um, an undiscrimination provision. So um, Wales or Scotland can't discriminate against goods which meet Um, relevant standards in another part of the United Kingdom. Um, And that may well mean a race to the bottom. There are, for example, um, uh, certain environmental standards that are enforced in Wales that aren't enforced in uh, the rest of the UK. And the Scottish government has minimum alcohol pricing um, as a health measure. And that would be a quantitative restriction on imports from the rest of the UK. And while the bill preserves um, divergences that exist on the date that it's Um, comes into force, any divergences after that which breach the concept of an internal market um, are likely to be declared unlawful. And given that England is 87% or so of that internal market, the consequence is going to be very serious for matters which can and can't be um, decided by the devolved legislatures and matters that are reserved to the UK. Um, It's been described by some as a power grab.
0: Well, I think notwithstanding that bombshell, we're going to have to, we're going to to park this bill for the moment. We're definitely going to come back to it in the next couple of weeks to look at in more detail. It's such an important uh, piece of legislation with such profound impacts for our constitution and our role in the world and our role with each other, as you've raised, uh, Helen. The other piece of proposed legislation, a bill currently working through Parliament that's also going to be the subject of an episode in forthcoming uh, pods, is the Overseas Operation Bill, which had its second read in Parliament last week. Some of you may know this is a bill that, amongst other things, seeks to create a presumption against the prosecution of service personnel, if not brought within five years of a crime, even if... There is sufficient evidence to prosecute for torture or genocide or crimes against humanity or or, or any grave breach of the Geneva Conventions, apart from a carve out for certain sexual offences. So this again seems to be an example of the United Kingdom seeking to move away from its international law obligations and also undermining our previously prominent role as supporters of the Torture Convention and the Geneva Conventions. Anyway, that's a topic for a further uh, episode in the coming weeks. Can I turn now to the COVID crisis? I mean, at the start of the pandemic, when we began these pods, we broadly approved of the government's response in the immediate days following shutdown, and we gave it somewhat of a break about the dubious legality of the uh, initial measures. The past few weeks, though, have seen an increase in local lockdowns and a real possibility we're about to face a national lockdown. And what we saw, not least over this last weekend, the emergence of really highly publicised opposition to the lockdown, crowds in Trafalgar Square, for example. It seems to be a strange collection of people opposing it, from right-wing politicians to civil liberties groups to um, a motley collection of anti-vaxxers. Um, what are we to make of all of this and the new restrictions from a civil liberties, human rights perspective, Murray?
2: I think these are undoubtedly extremely difficult questions, and uh, there, there's there's room for for lots of disagreement about these things. But I don't think one needs to be uh, of the Jonathan Sumption libertarian persuasion uh, to be concerned about some of the suggestions which are uh, are currently being proposed and whether or not they have a a, a good scientific basis. I think the the government's at risk of losing the trust of the public fairly rapidly now in relation to compliance and adherence to these regulations, and that's absolutely crucial uh, in a pandemic. Um, I think the process by which these regulations are made um, is incredibly important, and that's something which Parliament is going to be considering this week. Um, The the Graham Brady amendments to the motion to renew the Coronavirus Act emergency powers um, essentially asks the government to assure Parliament that what it's going to do when it lays these regulations in future is give parliament opportunity to um, debate them um, and to vote on them. Uh, Whereas at the moment what's happening is these regulations are being made under the urgent procedure. So they're being laid, they come into force um, almost immediately uh, and they're only debated by parliament let alone voted upon um, 28 days later, which is an absurd situation. So I think what the first step to trying to claw back some of the public trust is to fix the process by which the regulations are being made so that we can actually trust the government to have, um, subjected them to scrutiny before they come into force. Now, sometimes it may be necessary to introduce things extremely urgently. And that's, of course, um, that is recognised. But a lot of these regulations um, aren't necessarily in that category. So I think we need the government to revisit its position. And I think it's going to be forced to by the Commons this week uh, and actually give Parliament more of a role in looking at and debating and voting on these regulations.
0: Helen, do you share the view that there's a democratic deficit here?
1: Yes, I do. And I think that leads to a real lack of understanding about what is law and what is guidance. And um, in in conjunction with uh, what I think we did talk about last term, um, the uh, Barnard Castle trip um, of Dominic Cummings, it leads to a sense that these are rules which you choose to obey if you think they ought to apply to you and not otherwise. And it's all a question of um, common sense and privatized judgment. I think it's unfortunate.
0: I mean, we'd like to take kind of the long-term view here as to what's going on and the implications from a rule of law perspective. I mean, if people are losing faith in government regulation in the time of a pandemic and choosing to flout or ignore law, I mean, again, should we be worried about longer-term implications for us as a kind of a law-abiding society, or is this just something that we think is likely to be confined to the particular... And bizarre times that we live in. Murray, what do you think?
2: I think there are concerns of that kind. I think a, a lot of what we're seeing going on, including what we just talked about in the Internal Market Bill, um, is undermining public trust in our institutions. Um, what we we're describing there in terms of international law um, is, a, is a long, um, hard-earned reputation that the, the UK has in relation to leading the world in relation to the rule of law. And that depends on... Um, trust in the institutions which uphold the rule of law, something as abstract sounding as the rule of law. And it's the same with our democratic institutions. Um, I think that there is a real risk that if the government behaves in a particular way, uh, public trust in institutions uh, begins to uh, decline even more rapidly than we've seen over recent years. And I think that is very concerning. Well,
0: can I just ask you both about one aspect of that? Just one Touched on Lord Sumption before, who appears to become the spiritual leader of um, part of this uh, movement. Do either of you share the kind of unease that I have that somebody who's so recently retired from the highest judicial, one of the highest judicial offices, is putting himself in such a public position, indeed, one that a public position in which he's questioning the utility of laws? Um, I mean, is that is that what we should expect from our senior judges, even when they retire? H- Helen, am I alone in finding that very uneasy to listen to?
1: Um, I find it uneasy too. I mean, we don't have Kilmure rules. There isn't a convention on this now. It's it's a question of restraint. I think the problem um, is that views he expresses, which he regards, and I know because I spoke on a platform with the policy exchange he regards as political views which now he's no longer a judge he's at liberty to express aren't seen as political views because of the reason that he's famous which is having been on the supreme court and that's I think the difficulty that if you're going to express political views you need to be very careful that you signpost it um, but that's a question of personal judgement i suppose and in the absence of a of a restraining clause
0: move, if I may, then to the next topic, which is judicial review. I mean, we'll all recall the ferocious reaction of the government to the Supreme Court's decision in the prorogation case and the subsequent threats to reform the judiciary. Uh, Lo and behold, in July, the government announces its intention to uh, launch an independent review panel on judicial review. Murray, you've written about this recently, I think. Uh, What's the review that's taking place and should we be concerned about it?
2: So the government has announced an independent review of administrative law, which has been um, set up to to look at whether or not there's a need to fundamentally reform some important aspects of our public law, uh, including whether there are certain issues which ought to be regarded as, uh, to use the legal language, non-justiciable, not for the courts to determine, um, and uh, also whether the grounds of judicial review need to be revisited um, and whether there needs to be other procedural changes to the law of, administrative, of, of judicial review. Um, now, the, the collection of issues which have been raised in this review really show that the animating spirit behind the review um, is to raise the question of whether the courts should really have their wings clipped in fairly, fairly serious and significant ways, because that's really the set of questions on the agenda. Um, the, the rule of law um, issue that I'm particularly concerned about uh, is the suggestion which is implicit in the, well, fairly explicit in the terms of reference, um, which is there ought to be certain areas which are just carved out as being political questions um, beyond the reach of the courts. Um, and this is something which the Judicial Power Project has written about a lot over the last few years. Um, and it's quite clear that that agenda uh, is designed to adopt an American style political question doctrine in a, of a very expansive kind, which distinguishes between legal questions and political questions and tries to put a lot of things out beyond the reach of the courts to determine. Uh, and that, for me, would be a very retrograde step.
0: Helen, you've appeared in many cases of judicial review at the highest level of a deeply political nature. I mean, are you concerned that um, time might be up for those type of cases?
1: Well, I mean, my my view on the question that's asked, I suppose, in, in this review is that judges do not overstep their role. And in fact, I think they are really acutely aware and actually properly aware that there are questions that are democratic questions about distributive justice that are for political decision and that if the people don't have a say in those questions they they lose a sense of belonging and um agency and um control over the political process and lose respect for it so i think it is important that judges don't set themselves up as arbiters of very broad social questions but i just don't think there's a question that they do if if the uh, legislature which is chosen by the people, um, sets out um, broad social standards which must be complied with, or says it's going to do things in certain areas, then it must do them. And if the government undertakes um, international um, obligations, then I think it's important that it is seen to try to comply with them. So I just I just I just think the question is, is is wrong unless you actually just do not believe in accountability through law. And that's very dangerous because then I think you get to an Orban style illiberal democracy where your only control over the government is to vote for them every four years or not. Well
0: I mean I wonder if we can then again just kind of put this issue in the context of the other subjects that we've been discussing. Acts that um, seek to deliberately override international law obligations, uh, uh, whether it's to former EU partners or under Torture Convention, etc. Um, and the, all, I mean, in one sense, one could see these as all part of a piece of a kind of almost Steve Bannon esque strategy. Uh, by those in government to sort of cause chaos, uh, uh, undermine alternative sources of legitimate power. I mean, again, is that is that too much of a conspiracy theory um, here, or or is that is that a legitimate concern? What do you think, Murray?
2: I think you're absolutely right that we need to we need to join up the dots. We need to actually look at the different proposals that are being brought forward. All, all of this, of course, quite separate from um, from COVID. Um, the, one of the surprising things, I think, is that these things are all being brought forward whilst we're actually wrestling with a with a pandemic. Um, and there clearly is um, a legislative reform agenda here, uh, which I think does have those features you described, Richard. Um, there, there clearly is an intent, a very determined intent to to roll back um, the, the the courts. Um, to um, amass more power to the executive. Um, and this doesn't appear either to be a, a program to put um, the democratically elected parliament more at the center of things. Uh, this is really about executive power rather than parliamentary power. And in fact, parliament in many ways, as the discussion we just had about COVID regulations, is being bypassed to a large extent by this government. So um, it's not as if really with, we're talking about re-empowering a democratically elected Parliament—it's really about um, amassing power in a democratically elected executive. And I think you're absolutely right to draw the to uh, draw the strands from these different um, different initiatives.
1: Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree, and have nothing to add. Or well, I do—not not, not publicly. I mean, you know, I do think this is a real matter of concern. And I do wonder how much um, the people who are driving this agenda have thought what it means and what, what they would think if people they disagreed with profoundly were in charge of the sort of um, engine of the executive at the moment. Because, because I think you, you, need a, you, know, you need a system that you buy into as a system, even if you haven't won the last election. I think that's very important to the ongoing um, nature of democracy.
0: Okay, so let's turn from our own troubling democracy to concerns on the other side of the pond. And perhaps before we talk about the politics there, just a moment to reflect on Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, both as a lawyer and then as a judge. Helen, what are reflections have you had in the past week about Justice Ginsburg?
1: Well, I mean, obviously the the, the judgments... Um, she gave have been enormously significant. And um, what I think she did in quite an overt way was to recognise that she brought perspectives to cases um, that perhaps other justices didn't. I don't think that's to suggest that, therefore, a woman will think necessarily different from differently from a man on all issues or that she suggested that. But it, it introduces the concept of... It, checking your own prejudices and privileges and imagining what the world is like for um, someone else. And I'm just thinking particularly of the Reading case, which was about um, searches by a school of a 13 year old backpack and underwear when she was suspected of, of um, dealing with drugs. And um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was part of the majority in that case. But she also said she was a bit frustrated that some of her colleagues couldn't understand the position of the child in that case and said they would never been a 13-year-old girl. It's a very sensitive age. And I just think... No, no one judge can bring that perspective to every case, but they can remember they don't bring that perspective to every case. And I, I think when you have people who bring that sensitivity and sensibility to cases, it changes the discourse for everybody. I think that's really significant. I suppose the other thing that's significant, which is perhaps quite not not quite so um, positive a spin, is that I do wish that she had perhaps retired a little bit earlier.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wonder if that actually is going to be one of her unfortunate, lasting legacies. Had she retired under President Obama, uh, there could now be a liberal majority, and indeed with her passing, uh, I I beg your pardon, a liberal majority uh, on the court, rather than what looks like generations of an inbuilt Conservative majority. Murray, what have been your thoughts this past week?
2: Uh, well apart, apart from that thought which um very much i think a lot, a lot of people are, uh, are, are looking back and thinking um how that might have been different um if she if she had stepped down earlier um, clearly her contribution to U.S. Supreme Court jurisprudence has been absolutely extraordinary. Um, I think we've been rather lucky to have Brenda Hale um, in, in our Supreme Court to, to do the same. Um, and uh, for those of our listeners who have been watching Mrs. America recently, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, was really the consolation for the fact that the Equal Rights Amendment has never actually been adopted uh, to the U.S. Constitution. She, she's, she's been the next best thing. Um, and uh, she, will, she will be, I think, very, very greatly missed by uh, by liberal jurists everywhere.
0: Can I give my own sort of two takes what I've been thinking a bit about this week about Justice Ginsburg? I mean, the first is that before she was Justice Ginsburg, she was the most extraordinarily influential strategic lawyer. I mean, making a difference perhaps more than anybody else in the U.S. on cases for gender equality. And if people haven't watched it, I'd urge they do is the documentary, The Notorious RBG. Because what actually, the thing that struck me most about the whole documentary is they had the audio tapes of when she was appearing before the Supreme Court as an advocate on those cases, and it's it's just utterly breathtaking. And then the second take I took about RBG is when I was discussing it with my two daughters uh, and you know having to wake up to the news, and then they read it on their feeds, their teenagers, and they knew about RBG. She was kind of a, like, she was like a bit of an icon to them. But if my parents had woken me up to the news that the US Supreme Court justice had died, I would have said, what's the US Supreme Court? Whereas here are my kids engaged. That might be a North London, you know, liberal thing. But <laughs> I mean, she just gave... I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you look at the reaction across people coming to the Supreme Court and paying tribute to her. She... She promoted an idea of the nobility of the pursuit of justice, and she promoted it, gave it publicity, and of publicity that very few other judges have done. And I think that's that's really extraordinary testament to her.
1: Yeah. Um, Richard, I- just just on that, coming back to the questions you were asking about um, Lord Sumption, you know, the, the, the cult of personality that does exist around judges in the United States Supreme Court is perhaps part of the politicization um, that takes place there. So it's slightly double-edged, isn't it, that you have um, political confirmation hearings and judges who are celebrities and the subject of um, feature films with glamorous actors as well as documentaries during their lifetime, that um, it it, it does lead to arguably to politicization of the law in some ways.
0: Well, it it does. And, you know, looking at the election in in November – uh, ahead and the possibility that the election might, as in two thousand, be decided by judges, not voters, is quite extraordinary when you think about the fact that the judges who are deciding it are appointed by, in this case, some of them by the one of the one of the candidates. Um, I mean, let's look beyond Justice Ginsburg herself and, and kind of touch on some of these themes for a moment. Looks now as there's going to be a inbuilt six, three majority, conservative majority on the Supreme Court, with potentially profound implications for uh, the repeal of Rome Wade uh, 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 and uh, Obama aspects of Obamacare. Um, and a majority on a court whose views on a range of social issues such as that are going to put them at odds with the majority of the United States population for generations, potentially. What are the implications there, Helen, for rule of law and respect for the judiciary?
1: Well, I mean, I think the the judiciary is seen very, very differently in in the United States and and in a much more politicized way, which I would rather we didn't um, have in this country. But the very politicized nature of the Appointments, the, 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 the appointments which have been made by the um, president, 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 um, are such that one possibility is that Congress seeks to make perhaps two more. Um, places on the Supreme Court. And it is apparently a congressional decision, not a a, a matter for the Constitution in the States. I understand that Roosevelt tried to make 15 justices when he was um, frustrated with the Supreme Court and got knocked back because that was such an overtly political thing to do. But given what a very large country it is, nine is quite a small Supreme Court and it wouldn't be beyond the bounds of possibility that um, that would be one way of uh, redressing the balance.
0: But the problem with that, surely, is then the next time the Republicans take over and they don't like the balance, they add another couple, and then the next party, and then before you know it, the kind of respect for the whole institution is gone. I mean, it, I mean, I, I, I can't help wondering whether this is just all a reflection of the deep seated, perhaps intractable divisions within U.S. society at the moment. Murray, again, am I am I just being overthinking this?
2: No, I think, I think you're right, Richard. I mean, I think if politics is as polarised as it is um, in the United States at the moment, and as it's becoming in many other countries, including our own, um, then the courts are thrown into the, the forefront of those polarised battles. And so um, legal ways of resolving disputes inevitably are perceived to become politicised. Um, and what, what strikes me looking at the US situation um, is uh, how um, how has politics come to be so... Um, unable to deal with such issues like abortion so that they are left to judges to decide. And, and I mean, that, that, that for me is one of the lessons, I think, just looking at US politics. We, we have to enable our um, political representative systems to make hard and difficult decisions on fundamental matters like abortion, so that the elections don't turn on um, who, who gets to pick the judges who decide the disputes, um, and that's where I think the, uh, the, the, the the review of administrative law is um, is, is really set up on, on on a false premise. It's as if we have already uh, gone down that route where we have political judges deciding political questions, whereas actually, as Helen was saying in an earlier answer, um, we have a much more sophisticated in our tradition here approach to these things, where there's a role for judges in a system where the, the parliamentary democracy. Uh, makes the, makes most of the important decisions, but they do so within a legal framework, and judges occasionally have to intervene to correct it when it goes wrong. And that's so much better than having a system where uh, the courts decide things such as uh, abortion, as they do in the US.
0: And Helen, do you think parliamentarians here, some of whom, after the Miller case, were calling for uh, parliamentary oversight of judicial appointments? Do you, do, do you think that? the spectacle we're about to witness in the Senate confirmation is going to be enough even to convince some of those parliamentarians that the US path is not the one we should be following? Or is it actually welcome because it just creates more chaos?
1: I don't know, um, but I don't know the answer to that question. Um, but I do think it's concerning that the basic mutual institutional respect um, between uh, the judges and the government and to an extent the legislature, but I think it's really between the judges and the government um, is in such a tense um, place. Um, I, I just think it's, it's deeply unfortunate.
0: Well, I'm going to wrap up the discussion there, because, as I said, this is a taster for the weeks to come, a quick survey of the issues that are going to occupy us in coming episodes, which we're going to do uh, amongst ourselves, but also with the help of expert guests. So thank you for tuning in uh, again to the Matrix Law Pod. And we look forward to the next time. Thank you.